Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm your host, Brian Peterangelo, and welcome to the podcast. With me today, I'd like to introduce our panel of investing experts here to provide their insights on this week's market activity. And if our chief investment office were a football team, these players would all be super. Steve Haight, head of equities, Rajiv Sharma, head of fixed income, and Paul Toft, senior fixed income portfolio manager. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our key questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. In addition, if you have any questions or need more information, please reach out to your financial advisor. Taking a look at this week's news, the economic calendar was very light. Initial unemployment claims increased slightly for the prior week, but still remained just under 200,000. And the Chicago Fed reported their National Financial Conditions Index for the prior week that showed financial conditions in the U.S. were loosening. We've got CPI next week, so we'll take care of that on next week's podcast. So, Steve, let's turn to you first for a recap on earnings announcements and, more importantly, the direction of analysts' future estimates, as well as everything else you're seeing in the markets right now. Well, Brian, we're definitely a good chunk of the way through earnings season now. Almost 80% of the S&P 500's market cap has reported. Continuing to see, you know, similar beat rates to what we've seen in the past. Um, It does look, though, like we're going to continue to see the trend uh, materialize that we've been talking about now for weeks. And that is that we're going to see earnings continue to move lower uh, at the index aggregate level. Um, as we uh, we progress through the course of this year, you know, our earnings right now in aggregate for the S&P 500 ticked a little bit below $223 a share. Uh, keep in mind that last year at the peak, we were close to $240 a share. So earnings have come down fairly significantly. Uh, right now, it seems like the market continues to price in this soft landing scenario uh, because if you take a look historically, uh, if we were truly pricing a recessionary scenario, you'd, you'd see those earnings estimates moving down closer to, say, $200, $205 uh, for the S&P 500. So, you know, earnings, I think, have been, uh, in general, they've been good enough. Uh, we haven't really seen companies get penalized for, for missing. Uh, when companies miss on both revenues and earnings this quarter, they're underperforming the market by 1%. The historical average for that underperformance is 3.1%. So, you know, you if you miss, uh, you're not getting smacked around. Um, on the flip side, though, if you beat on both, uh, you're only up uh, nine-tenths of a percent versus an average return of 1.7 historically. So again, uh, this quarter, it really doesn't seem like people are focused on earnings much. It's really been a macro-driven start to the year. Um, when I think about what has been going on in the market this week, you know, I, I think we, we clearly talked last week about the breakout above 4,100 and it, the fact that it was a significant moment for the market to see us um, have... Uh, a, a, a number of different uh, indications of change in trend, whether it's presence of momentum by by reaching an, a, a new 65-day high, whether it's the presence of strong breadth, meaning participation by a large number of stocks in the rally, uh, which we saw uh, in spades a week ago. Um, but I will tell you that you know when you when you get uh, 
deeper into a move like what we've had over the last six, seven weeks, um, we started to reach areas where, where market technicians call the market overbought. Um, and what we mean when we say overbought is it just means that, that things have gotten a bit ahead of themselves. Um, so when, when things get a bit ahead of themselves, it's typical to see a period of digestion. And I think that's really what we've seen this week. We've backed off a little bit in terms of, of market price. Um, I mean, we got up close to 4,200 on the S&P. And, you know, as I stare at my Bloomberg terminal while we're on this call this morning, it's, it's about uh, 120 points less than that. So a pullback of, say, 3%. You know, this is normal activity right now. Uh, there's nothing that we see right right here that tells us that you know there's some kind of a of a massive change uh, in market tenor. I, I I still see semiconductors outperforming on a relative basis. Man, let me tell you, it's really really difficult to get bearish the market when semiconductors are displaying leadership characteristics. Things like discretionary outperforming relative to staples, defensive sectors and industry groups continuing to have. Um, you know, difficulties maybe under showing underperformance characteristics with cyclical sectors like industrials, home builders, things like this are doing well. You know, that is just a classic early cycle bull kind of scenario. So really, this is normal trading activity. Uh, we don't see anything nefarious here. And, and you know, the other thing to, that I would want to say is, you know, when you look at when you switch from a, a bear market to a bull market, um, the the balance of the the evidence or the the weight of the evidence shifts to the bears. They have to prove their case now. And if you take a look, uh, historically, a good tell on that has been the 65-day low. So once you switch to a bull market phase, you don't typically violate a 65-day low. The 65-day low right now is all the way down around 3740. So the bears have a lot of work to do if they want to try to prove their case here. They've got to move this market 340 points lower in order to try to flip the trend again. So, you know, I think we're, we're fairly constructive on how things set up here, irrespective of, you know, some of the negative uh, economic kind of narrative that you continue to see talked about, you know, recession risks, all that kind of stuff. That's great, Steve. And so, Rajiv, in addition to those factors that Steve just mentioned, there might have been some reaction to some Fed speak this week. So what are you hearing and what are you seeing in the fixed income markets and the wrestling match between market participants about thinking what the Fed's going to do versus what the Fed's saying they're going to do? Well, that's a great way to put it, Brian. Uh, it is a wrestling match. And, uh, you know, we saw the FOMC meeting last week and most investors viewed that meeting and viewed uh, Fed Chair Powell's uh, comments after the, uh, the statement was released, the policy statement that they were, uh, they viewed that as dovish. And we saw that reaction in the market. We saw yields drop across the board, across the entire yield curve. Credit spreads also moved tighter. Uh, I think the market was anticipating, okay, now we're gonna have rate cuts later this year. The Fed did not say that in any means. Um, and I, I believe that Fed members had a job this week to kind of reel back the market, kind of get reality to come back in that they are not talking about rate cuts right now. Uh, we did see Fed members, including Chair Powell, come out this week uh, to really try to reel back the market and kind of, uh, you know, say that, you know, we, we still have work to do here. I mean, we had uh, New York uh, Fed President Williams come out and state that the Fed still has a lot of work cut out for them. They still have to get inflation to the Fed's target of 2%. He went further. He reemphasized that taking the Fed funds rate to a little over 5% still makes sense. Uh, he also went one step further and made a statement that restrictive policy could be in place for a few years. And that's really diametrically opposite from what the uh, 
market expectations are that we're going to start seeing rate cuts at the end of the third quarter or the fourth quarter of this year. But uh, Fed President Williams came out and said, because of the risk of inflation being persistent, stubbornly persistent, uh, we would need policy to continue to be restrictive, and we would need rates to go higher from, from where we are right now. That being said, uh, he did believe that 25 basis points is the right and the appropriate moves to be making at this point. 50 basis points a little too aggressive. 25 basis points make more sense. Uh, we also had Fed Governor Cook come out this week, same message, highlighting that inflation is moderated, but it's still running too high. And the Fed will keep will keep doing what they have to do to keep uh, uh, policy restrictive for some time. We had a few other Fed speakers come out this week, all with the same narrative. So I think they all had a job to do this week to kind of reel back the market. Maybe we've come a little too far. Uh, the impact of these comments, it did take yields higher across the yield curve. So we gave back a lot of the gains that we saw last week. Uh, after the FOMC meeting. Uh, specifically speaking, the two-year Treasury note yield rose to its highest level this year. So we have investors that are now thinking the Fed could at least hike two more times to get uh, to that Fed funds rate a little over 5%. We saw the two-year Treasury note yield uh, rise eight basis points to 4.5%. That's the highest level that we've seen since the end of November. And that's quite a move if you think about it, because last week, right after the FOMC meeting on February 2nd, that two-year yield dropped to 4%. It closed at 4%, and now we're at 4.5%. So that's how quickly this market can move, all based on the narrative and all based on uh, comments that we had made before, that as long as that disconnect is there between what the market expects the Fed to be doing later this year, that being in the sense of rate cuts, and the Fed saying we're not there yet, we, have a, we might pause, but we're not going to do any rate cuts until 2024, that disconnect leads to this kind of volatility and this kind of movement that you see in the two-year. And it's important to note that uh, the yield curve remains inverted. The two-year is at its highest yielding note in the Treasury market right now. It's the highest yielding. The 10-year uh, is at 3.68% when I last checked. Uh, so it points again to the expectation that rate increases of last year will cause an economic slowdown. That's why the 10-year is behaving the way it is. And we must also highlight that we're in the deepest yield curve inversion that we've seen in decades. So all of this, you know, supports that narrative that, you know, we're going to see volatility as long as this disconnect uh, continues between the Fed and the market expectations. If you look at credit, the credit markets, they rallied since December. Uh, they are showing a little bit of pullback, but nothing alarming. And that that does support the market quite a bit. That supports risk assets. If you look at investment grade credit spreads, they were just two basis points wider on the week. And that's even after we had a new issue primary market that priced another 35 billion in new issuance this week in investment grade. So deals are being oversubscribed for the minimal concessions, the market is chugging along nicely, and uh, fund flows continue to be positive into investment grade credit. And if you look at these markets, what what catches my uh, my eye is that credit spreads where they are right now, many investors, many uh, Wall Street firms have all stated that where we are right now is where their year-end targets were. So we may have come a little too, thick, uh, too quickly, they come too far too quickly, but at the same time, I would say that uh, the focus should remain on the up and quality trade, remaining neutral duration, and we really need to focus on those liquid issuers and securities to kind of navigate our way through uh, some of these swings in the market. Hey, Bridget, really quickly, you know, I, the, the, we don't focus too much on what goes on north of the border, but the, uh, the can Canadian jobs report came in 10 times better than expectations this morning, which just on the heels of last week's uh, non-farm payrolls report here in the U.S. just kind of reinforces how strong this recovery is here in North America. 
you know, do, do you think that we could see the focus again shift back to the CPI report next week in terms of potential for outsized market impact, given what we've seen in these two jobs reports here in North America in the last 10 days? Absolutely. I think that uh, next week's report is going to be extremely important. The market's going to be looking for it. Any kind of um, any kind of uh, discrepancy between what the market expects on that CPI report, that could really move the market. We had that blockbuster jobs report last week. I, that definitely ha impacted where we were in the market. We know the Fed's focusing on jobs. Uh, I still think that hospitality and retail jobs did are, have a long way to go to come back. But uh, yeah, that was a strong report and strong one in Canada too. I think the focus now shifts on the CPI and we'll see more volatility next week. And as I mentioned about the new issue calendar, no one's going to get in front of that CPI report as far as new issuance goes. Yeah, good question, Steve and Rajiv. Thanks for your response. Uh, today, we've also got Paul Toft here with us to talk about what's happening in the municipal bond market. So, Paul, what do you see going on? Good morning, Brian. Um, so, I'm going to talk a little bit about what is going on in the muni market, but uh, briefly how we got here. If we take a quick look back, 2022, um, everybody knows it was a bad year for fixed income. Munis were included in that. We also had record outflows of money coming out of open-end municipal mutual funds of 120 billion. That's the biggest calendar year of outflows um, in history since they've started tracking that in the muni market. But on a positive note, we've seen kind of a reversal of that. So after almost 52 weeks in a row of outflows, we actually have had four consecutive weeks of inflows. Usually that happens after rates stabilize a little and people feel like it's a little more safe to come back in the water. So things were things were feeling pretty good. Just last month in January, we had the inflows and uh, we also had a nice month of returns just to give our listeners uh, an idea of what that means. You know, the five-year muni index was up about 2% just for the month of January. So along with treasury securities, munis rallied and uh, got the year off to a pretty good start. But then as Rajiv talked about the strong job number last Friday, where we saw um, way higher than expected a new job creation and a new record in unemployment rate going to five, uh, 3.4%, kind of caused uh, fixed income markets um, to question where we're really at. As Rajiv mentioned, treasuries traded off, munis followed in sympathy. So kind of a tough week uh, in munis last week. But where do we stand now? What does it mean for our investors who own munis or people who are thinking about entering the muni market at this point? For investors that own munis, um, Again, it's, it, it, it was a great month in January, and on a relative performance basis, munis have been a, a better place to be than most other fixed income assets for the last year or so. But that leaves us in a little bit of a, a rich or overvalued position right now for those entering the muni market at this moment. So what do we mean, what do we mean when we say munis are rich to treasuries? We usually talk about ratios and the ratios that a muni bond yields in comparison to a treasury bond. So ratios are rich right now. And to put that in perspective, you know, we talk about these ratios. So let's take a three-year uh, municipal bond and compare it to a three-year treasury. If that ratio was 100%, meaning if the municipal bond yielded 100% of what the treasury yielded, you know, that would be great for investors and it would point you towards munis. If you could buy a AAA muni at the same yield as treasuries, but your muni is federally tax-free, you know, what a bargain. So when ratios get near 100%, we often see big buyers coming into the muni market. 
On the flip side of that, if the ratio is too low, just by an extreme example, let's say the muni only yielded 25% of treasuries. Well, nobody would be buying that because it's just too much to give up to get that tax-free income. So right now that ratio is about 55%. So what does that mean for our muni buyers on the margin? You know, even if you're in a 37% federal tax bracket, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense buying munis today if you're just kind of a buy and hold in that two to three year. You're, you're actually better off buying a treasury, paying the taxes, and you come out with a better after-tax yield. So at the moment, on the margin, treasuries look better, or maybe high-quality corporates. You can pick up a little more spread there because the muni market's relatively rich now. Now, will it stay this way indefinitely? No. These, these ratios ebb and flow. Um, sometimes they get stuck for several months, six months or more. Um, we could also see a reversal of this coming in just a few weeks. So it's something we'll keep our listeners up to date on. And uh, we'll, we'll be watching that and tracking the relative value. Back to you, Brian. Well, thanks for the super conversation today, Steve, Rajiv, and Paul. We appreciate your insights. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. And as always, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or financial advisor for more information. And we'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, key private client, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are provided by Key Bank National Association, a member of FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Key Private Bank and Key Bank Institutional Advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency, USA Incorporated, or KIA. KISS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investments and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not being guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. eBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2023.